we conclude our focus on who are we finding our collective identity in Christ. Our scripture text is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which my good brother referred to in his um, death sermon this morning. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 5, beginning with verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. From this text, I want to speak to you on the title, We Are Reconciled. We Are Reconciled. God, I pray that this would be your message, that ultimately you would speak, and I would just be the vessel you've decided to use to say what you want to say. To these, your beloved children, my sisters and brothers, God, I desire to be obedient to your word, so please let it be done. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We are reconciled. Um, outside of being a Minnesota sports fan, I am really into superhero movies and comic books. No, 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 I am really into superhero movies and comic books. So I understand that in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, we are now into phase four. So phase three ended with the dual uh, movies of Avengers Infinity Wars and Avengers Endgame. Really, phase three ended with Spider-Man Far Away From Home, and that led into phase four. And if you got Disney+, Plus, then you get to see WandaVision, and then from WandaVision, Falcon and Winter Soldier, and then we just concluded Loki, and now we're in the What If series that gets us now into September with Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings, which helps us understand and make more sense of Iron Man 3. And then from there, we're going into the Eternals and then from the Eternals into uh, Spider-Man No Way Home which sets up uh, Ant-Man and Wasp Quantumania and also sets up Doctor Strange and the, the, the multi-universe that's going to then conclude phase four and go into phase five of the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. I do know some things about the Bible too. <laughs> but I'm really into superhero movies. And comic books, as you can tell. And uh, what I loved about phase one of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is when it, it, when it got to the, the first Avengers movie, what it told us is, is after seeing uh, some solo movies about Spider-Man and the Hulk and the original Avenger, Captain America and Thor, uh, Iron Man, of course, after we saw all those movies, what, what it was saying is sometimes... There's such evil 
there are, are such threats to the earth that, that solo heroes just won't do. It takes a collective of heroic brothers and sisters that will come together as one unit, unified to be a force of justice and good and transformation. That's why the Avengers had to come together. Paul is writing to a church. This is his second letter to the church at Corinth. In the first letter, he's writing to this urban, multicultural, multi-ethnic, Christ-centered community, these, these individuals that have now become a collective that is known as the church. And in the first letter, he's basically talking to them about who they are to be internally as this Christ-centered, multi-ethnic, multicultural, urban church. I mean, in, in chapter 12, he says, look, there are many gifts, but it's the same spirit. It's the same God. Hey, this is like a body and you know there, 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 no member is lesser than no member is higher than you are one body and then he goes into chapter 13 and sometimes we use that as a scripture text for a wedding but really it's context is for the church and well maybe it's a wedding to the degree that it's about uh, the church as the bride and, 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 and Christ as, as the groom uh, potentially but, but he's writing to this church about who they are to be internally in 2 Corinthians, you could argue that he makes this turn to who they will be in the world, who they will be in their city and beyond, how they will reproduce and multiply and flourish as the church. We are in a bizarro, upside-down, broken world. Uh, there's, there's this comic book series in the DC realm called uh, Bizarro World. It's a Superman series. And really how, how the series goes is, is that uh, there's this other realm, this other place called Bizarro. It's an evil upside down world. It's so broken, it's so evil, it's so backwards that there's someone in Bizarro World who looks just like Superman except he's as evil as Superman is good. And the, the evil backward upside downness of Bizarro World threatens to invade planet Earth. So, so Superman makes a sacrifice of himself and he goes into Bizarro World to take on this evil threat. Now, now to go with this story arc, you have to believe that for the most part, things on planet Earth are good. I mean, there's harmony, there's peace, there's goodness. People are hospitable and generous and compassionate and just towards one another. It's bizarro world that is upside down and backwards. But, but the, the, the truth is we live in bizarro world. This is the upside down world. Ah, but here's the good news. Over 2,000 years ago, someone greater than any comic book hero ever written about. His name is Jesus and he came into this bizarro world. And he declared and demonstrated the kingdom of God. And as I said yesterday, he gave us a picture of what this upside down, bizarro world would look like if it was turned right side up and blessed. And one day he will return and all will be made right forever. Until then, who are we to be? How is the church to function? What is our mission one of the ways to find our collective identity, to find our mission, is to know we are reconciled. We are reconciled. So what does that mean? Why is Paul spending time here in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians talking about reconciliation? Well, well, we are reconciled. Why? Why? We are reconciled, point one, that we might rediscover God's love. 
Because that's really what reconciliation is all about. This word reconciled is really, it's, a, it's to make peace. And, and so there's, there's separation between humanity and God. There, there is disruption. There is dysfunction. There is wrath between humanity and God. And, and so Christ Jesus, as the ultimate reconciler, his death and resurrection on the cross, it is, it is the opportunity, the access to make peace between humanity and God, but also to make peace with one another to be reconciled. So we are reconciled, one, that we might discover God's love, God's love shown in Christ Jesus. Paul says in verse 14, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And so this love in Christ, this, this word compel means to be governed by, to be hedged in, to be controlled by. Uh, you could almost say to be imprisoned by God's love in such a way that we no longer want to live just based on our individual self-interest, but we are dying to the old self and living to something new through this reconciliation that has already been done, already been completed in Christ Jesus. The reconciliation work has been done. And so to live as the reconciled is an opportunity to discover God's love. God's empowering love, God's transformative love. We are beloved by God and we can realize this through intimacy with God, identity in Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We are the beloved of God. This is a love that we cannot produce in our own power. We can't do it. You know, I have found there are certain things I can do in my own power. I, I just watched this, excuse me, sir. I don't like you. See how easy that was? I don't know this man, and I could just look at him and tell him I don't like him. I didn't need to join a small group. I didn't need to go on a retreat. I didn't need an accountability partner. I didn't need to join anything in my own strength. In the name of Ephraim Smith, I can look at somebody I don't even know. I don't know their background. I don't know their story. I don't know their name and decide in my own power and strength that I don't like them. I have found that in the name of Ephraim, I can be jealous. I can be envious. I can discriminate. I can be prejudiced. I can live in sustained anger. I cannot forgive. I can hold aught against somebody. I can be divisive. I can dehumanize. I can demonize all in the name of Ephraim. But to love mercy, to do justice, to walk humbly, I need the love of God flowing in my being. I need to be empowered. I need to be transformed by the love of God. I'm sure we'll get along fine. Thanks for helping me in that part of the message. But, but, but we need God's love. When I officiate weddings, I, I say to couples, I, I, I say to them, I, I look at the guy, uh, you know, just, we're sitting in my office at church and I look at the guy and I said, look, I need to tell you this. Uh, here's an out if you want it. You do not have it in your own power to love this woman the way God desires that she would be loved. You, you can't do it. And, and if she's Pentecostal, she says, amen, tell him, pastor. And if I look at her and I say, sister, I got to break the news to you. You do not have it in your own power 
to love this man the way God desires he would be loved. What, what are you going to do? How is this going to work? Uh, I said, the, the best thing you could do is you can wake up every day and say, God, I give you permission to love my spouse through me. I surrender to you, God. I need your transformative, empowering, crazy love flowing through me. As you love me, love through me. Love my spouse through me. Love my kids through me. Love my grandkids through me. Love my neighbors through me, love my co-workers through me, love my enemies through me. We are reconciled that we might discover God's love. Point two, we are reconciled that we might discover ourselves and others anew. Verse 16 says, so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. In this diverse church you had Jews and Gentiles. You had people that in the social structure of the day were enemies. You had the oppressed and the oppressor. You had the powerful and the subordinate in the same space, trying to be church, trying to be the beloved community of God. You had uh, the, 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 the people at the top of the social structure and the people on the bottom of the shoe of the social structure in the same space. Paul says, if this is gonna work, if you're going to be the church like this, then you can't regard each other from a worldly point of view anymore. You can't see yourselves the way the Roman Empire wants you to see yourselves. You can't even see yourselves the way that the Pharisees and the Sadducees want you to see yourselves. You have to see yourself in an otherworldly way, a non-worldly way. Uh, what, what, what am I trying to get at? We still have social structures and systems today that are trying to pull us from identity in Christ, collective identity in Christ, into worldly identities. The race structure is one of those. Uh, there, there's really no biology to the race structure. The race structure is basically based on your skin color, your physical features, where you were born, your slang, whether your parents had money or not, whether you were born at the end of a dirt road or on concrete on a cul-de-sac, we decide who's smart, who's dumb, who's fast, who's slow, who should be feared, who should be revered, who can clap on beat, and who shouldn't bother. <laughs> that last point might have some legitimacy, though. That's the race structure. That's why it's demonic. That's why it's worldly. That's why it's divisive. That's why it brings brokenness. Yeah, I know I live in a world that says I'm black. I, I, I get that. I, I, and, and, you know, and every once in a while I put on James Brown's old song, Say It Loud. I'm black and I'm proud. But I do know this. My family tree, my heritage is much deeper. It's, it's, it's broader. It's more diverse than what the race structure can bring. So uh, my great-great-grandfather was Scottish and Irish on my mother's side. And he married a woman who was a descendant of African slaves in this nation. Uh, I also have Cherokee in my family tree. So I'm, I'm like African-American, Scottish, Irish, Cherokee, all that. I'm Irish. I drink green Kool-Aid on St. Patrick's Day. It's, it's awesome. 
because I have this diverse. And you know what? You're more than white. You're more than yellow. You're more than red. You're more than brown. You should take more time to discover the richness of your family tree, the depth of it. What did God do through it? Even if you're the first generation to claim Christ in it, you should know it. And, and, as, and as elders, we should pass this information down. I'm so glad that my mom and dad made me go to Monroe, Louisiana every summer as a kid and sit on my grandfather's lap and sit at my grandmother's feet and hear the stories of my ancestors and my elders and in the midst of slavery and Jim Crow calling on the name of Jesus and believing in reconciliation and believing in the transformative love of God. How could I be kept from that heritage? How could I be kept from that diversity? There's an opportunity for you to rediscover yourself so you can rediscover other people that don't look like you. That is the identity of the reconciled. You're saying, why do I have to do that? Why do I have to rediscover identity? Because then that helps you understand what it means to be Christian. Because when you become Christian, you have to rediscover identity. You have to rediscover identity when you become a Christian. I, I'm beloved. I have an inheritance. I have a reward waiting for me. I am in the same covenant heritage that God made with Abraham and David. I have the same veracity and boldness and courage that God gave Joshua and God gave Esther. No matter your ethnic cultural background, there is a richness in your family tree and there's a richness in your identity in Christ that no one can take away. We are reconciled that we might rediscover or discover for the first time love and we are reconciled that we might discover ourselves and others. Second, we are reconciled that we might discover Jesus. It says here, verse 16, it, it, it'll make sense if I read verse 16, the beginning again. It says, so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. What, 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 does, what does Paul mean by this that we once saw Christ from a worldly point of view. We once saw Christ from a worldly point of view. Ah, this gives us insight into Paul's own life because Paul used to see Jesus from a worldly point of view himself. Yes, Paul thought that Jesus was someone who came just to stir up trouble against the Roman Empire, to stir up trouble against the religious structure and hierarchy that he was a part of himself. And so when Stephen is stoned to death in the book of Acts, Paul is there. He's there believing it's right. And he's going now to find other Stephens to find other Stephanies that are doing the same thing so they can have a similar fate. He saw Jesus from a worldly point of view until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He met the resurrected Jesus and it changed his life. He had to discover the real Jesus. He's reconciled now to God. His life is changed. And so we are reconciled to discover God's love. We are reconciled to discover others and ourselves. And we are reconciled that we might discover the real Jesus. Because there are still worldly Jesuses 
out here. Let me introduce you to some. There's the white Jesus. There's the black Jesus. There's the American Jesus. There's the English only Jesus. Uh, there's the Jesus is my homeboy. There's the, the celebrity Jesus. There's the, uh, the, the, the Hollywood celebrity Jesus. Uh, there's the genie kind of Jesus where I just like when I need something, there's the casino Jesus, right? Like, come on, Jesus. Yes. You know I needed that Jesus. There's all these worldly Jesuses out here, and we need to know the Jesus of Scripture. We need to know Yeshua, Yeshua. We need to know the Messiah, the Savior. In Matthew 1, there is a earthly genealogy of Jesus. Now, that Matthew 1 understanding of Jesus should never supersede John 1's description. A description of Jesus. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. Words with God. Nothing came into being without Him. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was the light. Ah, this is Jesus. But what is Matthew helping us to understand? This genealogy. Well, if you were to study that genealogy deeply, of course you would understand that Jesus is Hebraic, that Jesus is a Jew. But you would also, as you unpack all of those families in that family tree in Matthew 1, you'll find that these families are the original inhabitants of the places we call today Israel, Palestine, Ethiopia, Egypt, the Sudan, Libya, uh, uh, what we call today Iraq. So that means that there, there's like Iraqi and Sudanese and Palestinian and Israeli and Ethiopian and Egyptian and so on, all in this family tree of Jesus. If this is true, when Jesus walked the earth, he walked the earth as a Jewish, multi-ethnic, multicultural human being. When Jesus died on the cross, this was multi-ethnic, multicultural blood dripping from his head, hitting the foot of the cross. We can say that Jesus died for all of our sins because all of us was pumping through his veins. This is our Savior. How dare we reduce him to a worldly point of view? Ah, we are reconciled that we might discover God's love. We are reconciled that we might discover ourselves and others. We are reconciled that we might discover the real Jesus. And verse 17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's a bonus, 6 verse 1. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Ah, we are reconciled that we might discover God's love, that we might discover ourselves and others, that we might discover Christ, that we might discover our ministry and our message. We have a ministry. Our, our, our cities, our neighborhoods, our towns ought to feel the message and ministry that God has given us of reconciliation. To be reconciled means to make peace makes me think of my great uncle Wes on my dad's side. 
he um, became very ill uh, as he was in his late 60s, going into his 70s. And um, I, I loved my great uncle Wes. He would, he would come by our house a lot when I was a kid and he would, uh, he would always have like candy that he knew me and my younger brother Tremaine liked. My favorite is Kit Kat. So he'd have a Kit Kat bar for me and then he'd give us like a dollar and 25 cents so we could, at that time we thought we could buy all the Kit Kats there were. Um, and, uh, and then he'd tease my dad and give him like 35 cents or something like that. And then, um, but when my uncle uh, became ill, it was around the same time I was starting in the ministry at 21 years old. So when he was in the hospital, I, I went to visit him. And, and it was tough because he, he was this tall man, strong man, and it was hard for me to see my great uncle Wes in this way, young minister, still not understanding the death and the rewards, my, my, my brother Daryl, still wrestling with that as, as a young preacher. And so I walk into the hospital room, and my uncle Wes is there, and he's smiling. And um, he said, I knew you were going to get over here eventually, little Rev. He said, but you don't have to worry about me. He said, I know I have lived my life upside down. He said, but I was sitting here in the hospital room knowing that I'm getting close to death and I was feeling sorry for myself. And he said, and I, he said, I thought for a minute, I think in hospital rooms like hotel rooms, they have Bibles in here. And sure enough, he said, there was a Bible right here in my room. And he said, and I started to read it and I started to cry thinking about how my mom raised me in the church and all these years I'd ran so far from it. He said, but then I experienced God's love right in this room and I gave my life to Christ. And he said, now the only people I can share Christ with are the people that come in this room. He said, don't be like me, little Rev. You tell people when you're preaching, tell them don't be like your great uncle Wes who waited till he was laying on a hospital bed and, and after my feet had been amputated and one of my legs under the knee because I can only witness to people that come in this room. Tell people that they should, while they can walk and run, they should tell as many people about the love of God. He said, but don't worry about me. I have made my peace with God and I've made peace with the people around me. But you run and tell the story. We all have a reconciliation ministry. Yours doesn't have to be to preach. Yours doesn't have to be as a worship leader. What is it that God wants to do with the gifts, the treasure, and the time that you've been blessed with? As my brother Daryl referred to, don't be like that servant that took the, the one bag of resources and put it in a hole because he only got one. Multiply what God has given you. Multiply your, your passion. Multiply your gifts. Multiply the intimacy. Multiply the grace. Multiply the love. This is the work of reconciliation. To make peace. To make peace. To make peace. That lives might be transformed. Find your ministry. So, that's what it is to be reconciled. To discover God's love, to discover ourselves and others, to discover Jesus, to discover our ministry and our message, wherever that might be, based on the gifts that God has already given us. 
Oh, but there is one last thing here I forgot here before I close. Back to verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. We are reconciled that we might discover death. That we might discover death. Man, you had me wrestling, Brother Daryl. I don't even like talking about death. But you know, if God asked me how I want to die, I would tell him. I wish God would ask me how I want to die. I would say, thanks for asking. I gave you a little preview yesterday into how I want to die. I told you, this is how I want to die. On my 100th birthday, I want to wake up at noon. I mean, it's my last day. I'm sleeping in. And then I want that southern meal from Louisiana and Alabama. Fried catfish, collard greens, macaroni and cheese, yams, hot cornbread with melted butter and honey with a tall glass of sweet tea, followed up by a warm bowl of peach cobbler with three scoops of vanilla ice cream melting off the side of the bowl. I want to eat that and wake up in heaven. Hallelujah. Glory in the highest. Thank you, Jesus. Ain't he good? Won't he do it? Do it, won't he? The problem is, God won't ask me. (laughs) But God does invite me to die to myself daily. You don't have to wait to die to die. (laughs) You don't have to wait until you die to die. You can die now. There are things in me that that reconciliation is about allowing God to kill things in me. What is it? Is it stubbornness? Is it high anxiety? Is it sustained anger? Is it pride? Is it individualism? Is it selfishness? What what is it that needs to die? Where will I let God do surgery? And I have found that when I pray, God kill the things in me that you don't want in me. For some reason, God answers that prayer every single time. God is killing me softly with his love, killing me softly with his love, killing me softly. There was an R&B singer named Roberta Flack. In the 70s, she had this song, Killing Me Softly. The song is about a woman who goes into a bar and she sits down and she's feeling bad and sorry for herself. And she looks up on stage and there's a guy with a guitar and he's singing a song. And as she starts paying more attention to the lyrics of the song, she realizes, this guy's singing about me. I don't know him. I don't think he knows me, but he's singing about me and it's killing me. It's embarrassing me. And yet it's healing me. Maybe that's what we need God to do to kill things in us lovingly, softly, that we might mature and grow in our single life, in our marriage, in our parenting, in our finances, in in how we look at our future and how we handle stress and how we look at circumstances. Ah, if only God would sing that song to me. Strumming my pain with his fingers, telling my life with his words. Killing me softly with his love. 
killing me softly with his words telling my whole life with his words killing me softly with his song 